This is the Less Doing Podcast with your host, Ari Mysel. Learn how to optimize, automate, and outsource and be more effective at everything. Today's interview is a special preview with Stephen Kotler, the creator of the Flow Genome Project and author of The Rise of Superman. If you want to talk about optimal human performance, this guy has taken it to the next level, and it's something that everybody can achieve. The Entheos virtual conference that I'll be hosting will be at the end of March. Right now, it's looking like March 27th to March 29th, but it might end up actually being four or even five days because we've gotten so much great content and you're going to hear interviews with experts from various fields i've got over 25 of them so this is just a preview of one of the ones that you will hear in the rest of the conference but i just wanted to share this now because the information is so cool so here's the interview with steven now i'm going to be speaking with steven collar who is author and director of research at the flow genome project so steven thank you for taking the time talking this morning a pleasure. So let's get right into it and uh, tell everybody what what is flow. How do you what is flow? <laughs> well, um, flow is our term. Flow is flow is the term that the kind of academically scientifically preferable term for an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. So in flow, attention becomes so focused on the task at hand that everything else falls away. Action and awareness start to merge. Your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness vanish completely. Time dilates, which means sometimes it slows down. So you get that freeze frame effect familiar to anybody who's been in a car crash, or it speeds up. And five hours will pass by, like five minutes. And throughout, all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. We call this experience flow literally because that's the sensation conferred in flow Every action, every decision leads seamlessly, fluidly to the next. So it's like being swept away in the river of ultimate performance. And when we, people were doing the original research, not the original research, because flow research dates back about 150 years, kind of to the birth of contemporary psychology and neuroscience and all that. Um, some of the very first experiments ever run in psychology and neuroscience were actually run on flow and optimal right. performance. Um, but... Uh, in the 60s and 70s, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who was then running the University of Chicago uh, psychology department, did one of the largest global psychological studies ever about optimal performance. And when he was interviewing people, and he interviewed, it was I think it was over 10,000 people, when they were describing the experience, flow was the term that kept coming up. So, you know, Abraham Maslow called this peak experiences. If you go back even further, William James thought he was looking at mystical experiences. That was the, so all these terms were, were come up, had come up that had been created, and Csikszentmihalyi's flow replaced them all, and that's now the term that scientists prefer. Okay, so there's, this, there's a bunch of different concepts that go into that, right? I, I, I mean, it, it sounds like it. There's, there's various senses and experiences, and it's funny that you mentioned the car accident. I, when I was 12, I had a dirt biking accident, and I did a jump, and the, uh, the, the tire, the back tire, somehow twisted off the uh, the jump because the jump broke. I remember in very, very great detail 
the the bike turning sideways in midair and i even remember feeling like i reacted to it some way and i hit the ground and the bike rolled over me actually i got some i was fine i had some scars and bruises but that's the only time i've ever had where i really felt time like slow down for me well so the thing to know here is that flow exists on a spectrum mm -hmm. most people spend about five percent of their work life in flow and probably don't even know it so flow is like any other Think of it as an emotion, right? You can be angry, right? You're mildly irate or you're murderously homicidal, right? It's still anger. Right. Flow is the same thing. We knew, we learned, that, and this was back in the 60s and 70s when Sikmi High did his original research. He came up with seven conditions. These are, you know, experiences, time dilation, loss of self, concentration, et cetera, et cetera, that denote flow. You can be in microflow when only a couple of these conditions show up. So say really common is time speeding up, right? You get sucked into a great conversation and you're totally in the moment. You're not aware of anything that else is going on and five hours pass, right? In five minutes. That's a really common experience. Deep flow, macro flow, which is the other end of the spectrum where all seven of these conditions show up at once. That is rarer and it has to do there's a lot of stuff going on in the brain and the body during flow, obviously, and we've gotten really good at understanding this. And it really has to do of with which parts of the brain are being recruited into the experience. Okay, and, and I definitely, I, I want to get into that. But now, why, on sort of a basic level, why is, why is that a good thing? Why, would we, why do we want flow? Why do we want a conversation to, you know, we, not that well, we don't want that, but why is that a good thing? Okay, so the answer to this, and <laughs> I, I, I want to start here. Flow is optimal optimal human performance. Right. So by its very nature, it is hyperbolic. So I'm about to give <laughs> all the, some of the reasons we want more flow. When people hear these for the first time, they're often shocked by the things that are coming out of my mouth. So for want. example, in flow, let's just let let's let's start kind of at a broad level. Researchers now believe flow sits at the heart of almost Every athletic championship, gold medal, world championship that's ever been won accounts for major, major, major scientific breakthroughs and significant progress in the arts. McKinsey and company, the business researchers, did a 10-year study of top executives in flow. They find top executives are five times more productive in flow than out. So that is not 5%, 10% increase. That is a 500% increase in productivity. It means you can go to work on Monday spend Monday in flow, take the rest of the week off, get as much done as your steady state peers. Wow. Flow massively, and we can talk about why all this happens later if you'd like, massively jacks up learning as well. So in studies run by DARPA on military snipers, when they induce flow artificially, and we can talk about how that happens we are later. Done, yeah. um, they found snipers in flow learned 230% faster than normal. At Advanced Brain Monitoring in Carlsbad, California, uh, a researcher named Chris Burke, who just did a TED Talk on this. You can see her TED Talk. It's floating out there. Um, they induced flow artificially. This time, uh, they used neurofeedback, and they got 500% increases in learning. So to put this in perspective, you've heard about the 10,000 hours needed for mastery. Mm -hmm. Flow cuts it in half. Creativity. Creativity is whether or not you're talking about 21st century skills, which is the list of all the skills our kids need to survive in today's world, and this was created by 400 top researchers, creativity tops the list. IBM just did a global survey of the most important 
characteristic in a CEO. 1,500 top executives from all over the world responded. Creativity was number one. The problem, we have no idea how to train up creativity. It's a black box. Flow massively, massively amplifies creativity and in a couple of ways that are worth pointing out. First of all, this is where the numbers get a little perplexing and complicated. Australian researchers just ran a study where they gave people a very complicated brain teaser. 40 people, nobody could solve it. Then they induced flow artificially and kind of crudely actually, 23 people solved the problem. In research done in my organization, the Flow Genome Project, this is just a broad survey and it's a preliminary study, so don't quote this as hard data, but we've been trying to quantify how much, because 23 people solved the problem out of 40 people. That's, that's a weird working number, yeah. right? We wanted to know what percentage does creativity get jacked up in flow. Our, our research suggests 700%. People are seven times as productive in flow. And the coolest part, and this is where it's really important, Teresa Amable at Harvard discovered that it's not just during the state that creativity gets jacked up, the ex extra creativity outlasts the state itself, suggesting that flow trains the brain to be more creative. And we kind of understand how that would work as well. So here's this skill that is fundamental that nobody knows how to teach, and flow actually trains up the brain in creativity. These are, by the way, just a couple of things. You have to, optimal performance, everything gets jacked up. Physical abilities, mental abilities, so you're stronger in flow, you're more courageous, your muscles react faster, all that stuff physically. You feel less pain in flow. Um, some studies, strength jacks up 15%, depending. There's reasons for that as well. So optimal performance, everything goes through the roof. There is literally, as far as anybody can tell, Nothing you can do on earth to optimize performance better than getting into flow. Okay. So, wow, first of all. Um, so, the, uh, the, As you said, the numbers are gaudy. And if you don't understand what's going on, and we can talk about the neurobiology and why this is happening and it starts to make sense, but you hear those statistics and it's just kind of mind blowing. Well, right. And, and so, there, there's, a, there's something there I really want to get to, actually. But first of all, it, just to visualize this, this is really making me think, and I, I just want to give this visual for people. The Spider-Man movie that, that was with Tobey Maguire when he first gets his powers, and the, I, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but and the bully comes to get him, and there's like a spitball flying at him, and he senses it, and it slows down, and he moves out of the way. The guy's about to punch him, and then he does his back bend. It's all, all of those faculties sort of come to life. Um, and I, I do realize that sort of in hindsight, there have been times when I've felt similar not, not to that level, but experiences such as that motorcycle accident. But the creativity is what I want to talk about for a second. So it's interesting that you say that creativity is the number one trait that, that people are saying that they need. And what I find, what I, I have found, and, and I've had a lot of these conversations now, and I was I'm talking about this specifically with uh, one of the other interviewees. Creativity, I, I feel like, is sort of our natural state in a lot of ways. Like we, we have to be creative, not, not that it's innate, but we have to be creative in most ways. And I don't think that we were sort of biologically designed to do financial forecasting, you know, or analytical stuff necessarily. And that, that's something that needs to be trained. And I feel like that obfuscates our ability to be creative in a lot of ways. Well, okay, so here's the, the big problem with creativity is under normal conditions, when you're trying to problem solve, the brain will recruit very close neural networks. So these are neurons located in the general vicinity of each other. This is 
really great for logical problem solving. Right. If trying to figure out what to get your dad for Christmas or if you should take a new job or you know those kinds of things, phenomenal. That's exactly what you want. Creativity, and we know this, is always the product of novel information bumping into old ideas to create something utterly new. So you need a number of things for this. You need a high degree of novel information coming in, and you need the brain, by the way, to be open to taking this information. So Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize talking about our cognitive bias, including confirmation bias. Confirmation bias says that we believe what we already believe. And what this literally means at a neurological level is that the brain is taking in, studies vary, but it's like 400 billion inputs a second. It's a massive, massive, massive information. Consciousness, what you're actually perceiving, they say is 2,000 outputs. We're not sure if those numbers are exact, but we do know that the reduction, 400 billion to 2,000, that's how significant it is. So when we talk about confirmation bias, what we mean is, if you don't already believe something, chances are the information coming in is going to get disregarded, right? So you're not going to get that novel information. That's part of the problem. The other problem is to get the old ideas. You don't want to search local networks, right? You want to search far-flung networks. You're right. trying to come up with something creative. Suddenly what your grandmother told you when you were five years old, that could play a difference. That could be the old idea that hooks up with the new idea that creates something utterly new. You need very specific connect. That's called lateral thinking, by the way. And you need very specific conditions to get the brain to search the FAR databases. Those are the conditions that are produced by flow. So flow does a number of things. It enhances your basic sensory perception. You're taking in more information per second, so you have greater access to novelty, greater chance. It lowers a lot of your fear thresholds. Your inner critic gets shut off, a lot of these things, so you're more open to that information. You're less susceptible to confirmation bias. Simultaneously, neurochemically and because of the brain waves involved in flow, you are searching larger databases. And your pattern recognition system, which is the ability to link ideas together, is also jacked up. The neurochemicals that show up in flow lower signal-to-noise ratios in the brain, so we notice more patterns. And... They expand the database searched by the pattern recognition system. So it literally surrounds creativity. If all these are the component parts of creativity, risk-taking is also another thing because you're going to – creativity in most definitions is the creation of something useful, which means you have to present it to the world, <clears throat> and that requires risk-taking and our ability to take – we're more courageous in flow for a lot of different reasons. So everything – it basically surrounds all aspects of creativity and elevates them. And I don't, I don't know of anything else that does this. Yeah, and so that's, that's fascinating because I know that people tend to be more creative when they're tired because they're less inhibited. So that's just one piece of that puzzle that you're talking about. Yeah, so for, that's a brainwave thing. When you're waking consciousness, your brain is in beta waves, very fast, you know, very quick moving. And what happens in beta is thoughts pop up and we attach to them. They don't, we get stuck on that thought, close neural networks again. When we start to drift off to sleep, when we get down to daydreaming, that's alpha waves, right? Flow takes place on the borderline between alpha and theta. Theta is only accessible during, you know, if you've got 20 years of meditation training or you're in that hypnagogic state right before you're falling asleep right. when I just linked ideas in wild ways. That's where flow takes place. So the exact same, the reason you're talking about with people being tired in flow, you're getting all those same brainwave effects, but you're not tired, right? So you're not, right. you're not, 
you're not low on resources, your resources are actually jacked up so you have that same ability but amplified in really specific ways. So before we talk about how you could induce this, are there people who are naturally more inclined to experience greater levels of flow? There are a number of different answers to that question. Um, are there like environmental factors or, you know? Yeah, so let, let me, like, I kind of have to answer both your questions at once. Sure, okay, we, no problem. We now know <clears throat> that there are 15 so-called flow triggers. These are preconditions that bring on more of the state. We, there are three environmental triggers. There are three psychological triggers, so external triggers, environmental triggers, internal triggers, psychological triggers. There are, there's a shared form of flow known as group flow. This is really common in startups, right? Everybody gets into flow states together and you can accomplish tremendous things in an afternoon. Um, there are a lot of people, by the way, who think startup success and failure, one of the major divisions is how much flow can the startup team produce. Um, and there's data to back that up. Uh, but you've seen, if you've ever seen a fourth quarter comeback in a football game, right, where team can't do anything for the first three quarters and suddenly it looks like you're watching ballet and it's not even football because everybody's so on the same page and they exactly where they're supposed to be. That's always group flow in action. Or, um, or I'm thinking like a SEAL regiment or something, SEAL, like a Navy SEALs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and in Rise of Superman, my new book that really deals with all this stuff, I talk about uh, the Red Bull Air Force, which is a team of... Uh, Skydivers, who, uh, if you saw the movie Transformers 3, they did all the base jumping sequences. Those were things that nobody had ever done before. Most of them yeah. were considered impossible, and they did like 11 of them together. The team talks about being in group flow. And one of the things that happens in group flow, and again, we can talk about why this happens, but there's almost a psychic connection. And a lot of that has to do with sensory perception and pattern recognition. But in the Red Bull Air Force, they were flying so close to one another, they had to be able to read emotion in the back of each other's shoes because that's what they were staring at because they were in this triangle formation. And the pattern recognition system got trained up so well that they could pull this off. So there are 10 social triggers that bring on group flow. There's also one creative trigger. Now, that is where we are today. We also know, for example... There are lots of different on-ramps into flow. Self, as an endurance athlete, you can ride pain and exhaustion into flow. Mm -hmm. High-risk high athletics uh, is another really, really big trigger. So there's high consequences, high-risk sport. But you can take ride altruism into the zone. There's a flow-based, an altruism-triggered flow-based state known as helper's high. That is uh, the same thing. So you can come in any different way. The people who are best at this in the world, and <clears throat> this is kind of where Rise of Superman comes into play. You asked for examples, yeah. and, and I should tell you this, this. This is the most useful thing. If you look at action adventure sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, et cetera, et cetera, as a data set, what you see over the past 30 years is something incredible. You see near exponential growth in ultimate human performance. That's performance and life of them is on the line. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Sports performance is slow, it's steady, it's linear. You plot it on a graph, you get a curve that looks like this. You don't get the giant U-shaped exponential shape. In other words, at no point in history does athletic performance quintuple in a decade. That's exactly what's happening in action and adventure sports. And let me just give you one simple example. Surfing is a thousand-year-old sport. From 400 AD to 1996, the biggest wave anybody had ever surfed was 25 feet. We're now pushing into waves over 100 feet. Yeah. 
right? And this is how this kind of change is happening all across actions and venture sports. The reason why it's happening, and we can again go into greater detail if you want, because of a number of things that shifted back in the late '80s, early '90s. Exosport athletes now live in a universe that is packed with all 15 of these flow triggers. It's the most concentrated <clears throat> example of this we've yet seen. So these athletes are getting into flow. And all of this happened kind of intuitive by intuitive necessity. The ground lifted so much in action sports that the upper levels just got so crazy. If these people weren't getting into flow to perform, they were ending up in the hospital or dead. So it, it was absolutely intuitive necessity, and they just drove in this direction naturally, um, which is important because it means that the, we will intuitively push ourselves in this direction if you kind of can listen to yourself. It, we can sure. do it naturally, right? Um, that makes sense. But, but <clears throat> the, reason, the reason these people got so much flow was because they surrounded themselves with flow triggers. But it's also important to point out, I just worth saying, somebody... Uh, this this quote is in Rise of Superman, and it was given to me by a guy named Reese Jones, who's one of the inventors of the internet. The little blue wire in your in your phone line that carries your DSL signal—that's his. Yeah. So Reese has been around Silicon Valley for frickin' ever, and he one of the things he said to me was, "Look, if you look at what built the high tech industry—network design, circuit design, and software design—you can't do any of these things really, really well without flow." So if you're looking for a non-athletic example of what happens when people start pulling all these flow triggers very frequently, Silicon Valley is not a bad place to start. Sure. So, okay. So, right. And, um, yeah, I, I think that I can imagine, you know, a hacker, like, getting deep into code, trying to get through an infrastructure of some sort. Like, that, that makes sense. And on the creative side, it makes sense, too, of course. What about – well, and so I still want to talk about how you induce it, but – what are those triggers? Can we go over what those triggers are? You sure can. I'm going to take a two-minute pause to get coffee and let in my dogs. Okay. And then I'll be back. Pause. Right. Fun in here. You're a loud mouth in your so. so the 15 flow triggers, <clears throat> let's just start with uh, the environmental triggers, which is, are what are so well utilized by the action adventure sport athletes. And we'll talk about how to hack each of them if you don't want to risk yeah. your life like an action sport athlete. Um, so the first of them we talked about, it's high consequences, right? This is really simple. Flow follows focus. So everything we're going to talk about trigger-wise, these are all ways to catch your attention and hold your attention, right? And we are hardwired biologically to do this in certain ways rather than others. So flow triggers depend on those ways. High consequences obviously catch our attention. We're mortal creatures. We don't like to die. We're going to pay attention. The important thing about the high consequences is what you really want is dopamine. The neurochemical dopamine shows up whenever we take a risk. So under the hood, what you're trying to get is the brain to release dopamine. The good news here is risk releases dopamine, but it doesn't have to be physical risk. You can hack physical risk. You can take emotional risks, social risks, creative risks, intellectual risks, and it's also Different. If we're talking about a world-class surfer, they got to paddle into a 50-foot wave to trigger this. But if you're the shy guy, all you got to do is walk across the room and talk to the pretty gal to pull this trigger. It's a lot simpler, and it depends on who you are and what your risk level is. You asked earlier, are there genetic preconditions that lead to this? There are sensation seekers. These are people who are born with low-functioning dopamine receptors. 
so they tend to produce more of it or seek it out, those kinds of things. Um, that could help pulling this trigger, but there are other things that can help with other triggers. High consequences is just one. The other two things that action and adventure sport athletes are depending on so heavily, first one is a rich environment. Rich environment is a fancy way of saying lots of novelty, lots of unpredictability, and lots of complexity. All three, again, release dopamine. Dopamine is one of five neurochemicals produced in flow, but it's very fundamental to triggering the deeper forms of the state. So one of the things that's happening with action adventure sport athletes is they're getting into macro flow states far more. And it's because of these three triggers. Rich environment, lots of novelty, lots of complexity, lots of unpredictability, all release dopamine, all catch and hold our attention. And we've all seen this, by the way. Everybody who's ever experienced awe, where you see a beautiful sunset and you get so sucked in, reality seems to pause for just a second, that's the front edge of a flow state. That's the beginning of the time dilation and the focus um, that shows up in deeper flow experiences. So we've all pulled this kind of rich environment trigger in our daily lives. Go see an IMAX movie, you can pull this trigger. It's pretty easy. The last one is deep embodiment. This is going to be really familiar to you because you do yoga. Deep embodiment is a really fancy way of saying we are paying attention to all of our senses and all of our sensory streams at once. So it's not just our five senses. It's proprioception and vestibular awareness, right? Balance and body position in space. We are paying attention to all these streams of information at once. Why do action adventure sport athletes pull this trigger so frequently? Because action adventure sports are packed with zero Gs, multiple Gs, and polyaxial rotation, rotation around one's middle. We're gravity-bound creatures. We don't tend to experience multiple Gs, zero Gs, and polyaxial rotation. So when you do, it grabs your attention system and says, hey, wait a minute, you're doing weird stuff. Pay attention here, right? But you can train up the deep embodiment trigger just simply through learning through doing. So for example, Montessori education, a lot of flow research in education has been run in Montessori schools because they pull, they produce tremendous amounts of flow. In fact, a lot of people believe that the tremendous success in Montessori education, the fact that Montessori kids tend to outperform all other kids on every test you could possibly give them. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, they, there's now, I mean, in Silicon Valley, they talk about the Montessori mafia. There are so many CEOs, the Google kids, across the, you know, across the boards who came out of Montessori education. It goes on and on. Um, that there was an article, I think it's in the Wall Street Journal, called the Montessori Mafia that was really famous about all this. Okay. But they and Kevin Rathunde, who's at the University of Utah, an education researcher, and Mahaley Chick sent me high. When they went looking for really high flow environments, one of the things they focused on was Montessori education. Why? Couple of reasons. One, it's built around long ninety-minute learning periods of uninterrupted concentration, so they give the kids ninety minutes to deep dive into whatever they're focused on uninterrupted concentration needed for flow. They also emphasize learning through doing. They call Montessori education embodied education. Mm -hmm. So it pulls that deep embodiment trigger. So you can do this any which way. Training yoga trains up all your sensory systems, you know, in this way. You, there's certain kind of Zen meditation where you, where you focus on all your sensory inputs that trains this up. Even doing something as simple as, driving to work in unusual ways or eating your meal with the wrong hand, it will just catch your attention and train up these systems. The idea is you want to do all these little tiny tricks, right? These are not flow hacks. These are just 
little tricks that will train up your ability to tap the deep embodiment trigger. So you want to kind of take a multi-pronged approach to it. I won't, uh, we're not going to go too crazy into the social triggers or the creative triggers because they're complicated and in the book, in Rise of Superman, they take 50, 60 pages to explain, but let's also jump into the psychological triggers because these are also important. There are three psychological triggers that matter to everybody. The first is what is known as the challenge skills balance. So flow requires massive amounts of attention. We learned, uh, remember when I said that flow research goes all the way back to the 1870s? Mm -hmm. One of the first experiments ever run was a guy named Wilhelm Wundt, who is the godfather of experimental psychology, the first experimental psychologist. One of the, her, his first experiments, he was hired by a beer brewery or an consortium of beer brewers in Germany to find out if there is a perfect amount of bitterness in beer, right? What he discovered is it doesn't really matter whether it's bitterness or pain or noise or sound or any other input that there is a, there is a area where we pay the most attention to it. So if you don't have enough of the stimulus, you're below the threshold, you're bored, you're not paying attention. And if you have too much, you jump over into the fight or flight response and all you want to do is run away from the stimulus. And there's this middle area, what they call the yerkes dobson curve or now the flow channel. The flow channel exists between anxiety and boredom in when there's a perfect balance between challenge and skills. What is that balance? We need the challenge to be slightly harder than the skills we bring to the table. We've actually, people have tried to quantify this and the general thinking is it's 4% harder. So whatever you're trying to do, you pay the most attention when it is 4% harder than the skills you bring to the table. Now, this is really critical information for people who are looking to trigger flow. And the reason is this. For super high achievers, guys such as yourself, you're going to blow by 4% without even noticing. You're going to go for 15%. You're going to push yourself so hard that you're coming out of the sweet spot for flow. And what you really need to do is dial it back and be more consistent. Because what happens is when you go for 15%, you work really, really hard and usually you get your butt kicked. And then you scale it way back below 4% until you kind of get it up again and you, then you shoot past it. Most people don't go for that. For people who are underachievers or you know less inclined to take risks, that kind of stuff, 4% is difficult to the point at which you start to get really uncomfortable. Okay. You're not comfortable at 4%. You are uneasy. Um, so I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, what is 4% harder when you're talking about? I mean, you know, do I run? Am I going to run 4% faster? Or am I, what, I mean, well, okay, so let's take running. Okay. When I'm trying to use running to induce flow, when I run a couple times a week, um, depends on what season it is and what sport I'm playing at the time, but. Usually I will try what I will either go 4% longer, so I'll add another kind of quarter mile in, or I will try to lower my time. So if yesterday, you know, I ran nine minute miles, today I'm going to try to run eight minute and 50 second miles, right? Yeah. Enough that I'm comfortable, enough that I'm uncomfortable, not something ridiculous. Um, in, and by the way, it, uh, it is very hard to figure out I, where that is, and it individually differs, and it probably individually differs in the activity, meaning I am probably, I've been skiing my whole life, 
I am much more uncomfortable. I'm mu it's much easier for me to go up to like 6%, 7% hard-earned skiing and still be in that sweet spot because I've got, or writing, I've got long history there. But if something I've never done before, maybe 1% or 2%. So it varies, totally changes, and it's not fixed. And this 4% this is a back-of-the-envelope calculation. I don't no, want to... No, no, I think it's very interesting because you're making me think of like in the movie Pumping Iron with Arnold Schwarzenegger where he basically says that the 12th rep is the one that matters. That's the one that makes the difference. I, uh, by the way, I, 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 have, I used to, um, I've spent a lot of years lifting weights because I was very, I weighed 119 pounds when I came out of high school and I was the same height. So as an athlete, I was breaking bones all the time and I had to put muscle around and I found the exact same thing. I found with lifting weights that either, you know, do 12 reps instead of 10 reps, I added in a fourth set. Yeah. Most people do three sets. I was doing a fourth set of like five reps. And I agree, it was, that was the difference maker because that was the one that pushed me into, I'm really uncomfortable and this is really hard. Yeah. So that's the challenge skills ratio. The other two uh, psychological triggers are immediate feedback and clear goals. And by the way, challenge skills ratio, immediate feedback and clear goals, anybody who's familiar with expert performance theory, the work of Anders Ericsson, any of that stuff, read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books, these are the same things. Chick set me high, did the original research on flow. They have since been incredibly well validated in expert performance theory and are now kind of the foundation of expert performance theory. So it's the same thing. Um, there are differences. The flow research tells us that the experts have kind of screwed up a couple of things, but and we can talk about them. One of them is clear goals. Where this goes awry is most people don't realize that you're hacking attention. They think, oh, it's expert performance theory. The goals have to be the emphasis. The emphasis is, what am I going to achieve because this is expert performance theory? That's not the case. You're trying to catch your brain's attention and hold it. Clear goals are important so you know what you're doing. You don't have to wonder what to do next. You know exactly what you're doing at any point, and you know what success looks like. So most people screw this up by focusing on the goals. And the problem is that pulls attention out of the present. It pulls it into the future. We've all seen this happen when a punter or field goal kicker misses the last second field goal. They've made it a million times as a 30-yard chip shot. And yet the height of the moment, what could happen, the goal, pulls they, them out of the choke. present. That's when they right? choke. They choke, right? So oftentimes the clear is more important than the goals. Know exactly what it is that you're trying to achieve in the now. Forget so much the big thing later. So that's 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 a little tip on clear goals. Immediate feedback is kind of an extension of this. You we have we get the best performance when we get immediate feedback from the environment. Why do action adventure sports athletes pack flow so easily because the mountain, as Paul Petzl once said, provides immediate feedback. You don't set that edge on a ski on the top of a car, you're going to end up on a face-first death slide to the bottom, right? We know in professions where, so doctors, as a gen, this is a great example, doctors as a general rule get their skills decline over time after medical school. And the only category of doctors where this doesn't happen is surgeons. Why? Because you screw up in surgery, patient dies, that's immediate feedback. They get better over time, everybody else's skills decline over time. That's unsettling. Is, that's a scary thing to know, but it's really true. I mean, 
you know, there's a reason why, by the way, 45% of the time when you get go to the doctor, they make a misdiagnosis. That's one of the reasons. Well, it's also one of the reasons that Western medicine is not particularly good at treating chronic conditions, I would say. But I agree, agreed with that. Absolutely agree with that. So that's it. This is a sense of those both triggers. I'm not going to go too deep into all the other ones because mm-hmm. they take they'll take too much time. Um, and they're in Rise of Superman in great, great detail. Yeah, and I want but everyone to read it. Believe me. Most important thing, you know, people need to know here is this is these triggers are available to anyone. And this is another key detail. Flow is ubiquitous. When we did, when Csikszentmihalyi did his global study, this was one of the first findings, because he started out looking at experts. He looked at dancers and rock climbers and surgeons and chess players. And of course, he found lots of flow. And then he went, okay, that's great. Those are the experts. We knew that. Abraham Maslow proved the same thing back in the 40s. He found that flow is a commonality among all highly successful people. We knew this. Then Csikszentmihalyi decided to expand the study. He talked to Navajo sheep herders, Italian grape farmers, Japanese teenage motors, gangers, gay, gang members, elderly Korean women, Detroit assembly line workers. All across the boards, flow showed up. It was always the signature of perfect performance and, you know, cessation. So when you, I, I'm just curious, when you mentioned the Australian study with the, the, the really hard problem, and you said they, they crudely induced flow? Okay, so let's talk about, we talked a little bit earlier about brain waves, right? right. Let's, tell, let's talk about the two other things that produce flow. We talked about neurochemistry. Flow is a very complicated cocktail of neurochemicals. Norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and anandamide all show up at various points in the state. Those five chemicals, these are the most potent reward chemicals the brain can produce. They all enhance performance, but these are all extremely addictive chemicals. So, for example... Are we going to talk about cocaine? Yeah, okay. Cocaine is widely considered the most addictive drug on Earth. All that happens when you snort cocaine is it causes the brain to release dopamine, right? Endorphins are opiates, morphine, heroin, except the most common endorphin in the brain is 100 times more powerful than medical morphine. Nandamine is the same psychoactive as THC, marijuana. Norepinephrine is speed. Serotonin is ecstasy. Mm-hmm. You can't cocktail these drugs on the street. I mean, like, beside the fact that you're going to end up dead or in a coma or, you know, that kind of thing, it doesn't work. Cocaine will always swamp ecstasy and you'll never get the effect and you'll only get the negatives, blah, blah. Flow produces all of these things naturally, which is why the state is so addictive. They call flow the source code of intrinsic motivation, meaning once an activity starts producing flow, you are compelled to do more of this. We've also seen this in action. Surfers, not known as the most responsible group of people on Earth, yet if it's overhead glassy tubes breaking off the point of Malibu, they're up there 4.30 in the morning getting into clammy wetsuits and freezing water to surf. We see this all over. Coders who, you know, are living on Doritos and Diet Coke for four days at a time. We've seen what this looks like, right? Rock, rock climbers climbing without a rope. Rock climbers climbing without rope. Um, so the, those are the neurochemicals. That's sort of what they do. The other thing, and this is, this is the key thing that you, you need to know to answer your question. The old idea that we've had for most of the 20th century is that we only use a small portion of our brain, and so optimal performance flow must be all of our brain firing on all cylinders. Turns out we had it exactly backwards. Flow is caused by what is known as transient, meaning temporary, 
hypofrontality. Hypo, H-Y-P-O, the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down or deactivate. Frontality is this quick shorthand for the prefrontal cortex, the portion of your brain right behind your forehead that houses all of your higher cognitive function, your executive function. So this portion of the brain shuts down and flow. Why does your sense of self disappear and flow? Because the portion of your brain that generates your sense of self shuts down and flow. So for example, when your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex shuts down, that is a portion of the brain that handles self-monitoring and impulse control. It's your inner critic. It shuts off in flow. We feel this as liberation. One of the reasons creativity goes up so much in flow is because the portion of our brain that is always judging ourselves and saying, oh, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's turned off. So we're more courageous. We're more creative. Time. Why does time get wonky in flow? Because time is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Parts of it go away. We can no longer separate past from present from future. We're plunged into what psychologists call the elongated now. So how we induce flow artificially, um, right now there are two main ways people are playing with. One is using neural feedback. This is usually based on brain waves, right? So we know flow is found on the borderline between alpha and theta. So we associate a tone with alpha and theta. We associate another tone with beta and things like that. And we learn to just kind of aim towards the tone and move our brain waves in that direction. So when I said they kind of crudely induce flow, um, in the Australian study, they used transcranial magnetic stimulation. They basically took a giant magnetic pulse and knocked out the prefrontal cortex. So it is a very crude measure. It does not trigger any of the neurochemical release as, we, as far as we know, and it doesn't seem to do anything to brain waves. All it does is knock out the prefrontal cortex. It's a weight fest on your PFC. So it's, it's crude, but it's effective. I mean, and by the way, let me just pull back one level and just explain why all this is happening. The prefrontal cortex shuts down because the brain has a fixed energy budget. It is always trying to conserve energy. It's a huge energy hog, right? uses 20% of our energy, but is only 2% of our body weight. Anything the brain can do to conserve energy, it wants to do. So when we start paying more attention, as focus goes up and attention takes a huge amount of energy, brain is saying, how can I save energy? What it does is it switches from conscious processing, the so-called implicit system, explicit system, which is slow and very energy intensive, to subconscious processing, the implicit system, which is very, very, very fast and very, very energy efficient. So that's what's going on in flow. It's actually an efficiency exchange. Flow is interesting because we never really get to see the subconscious work unless we're in flow. And people talk about being in flow and they always talk about, uh, you know, I'll talk about this as a writer. If, if I'll sit down, get into a flow state, and I'll write, you know, 10 pages in an hour, and I'll be like, oh my God, I don't, I don't remember writing it. It didn't even feel like I did it. Yeah. That's because my conscious eye really wasn't involved in the process because my subconscious was driving the bus. Yeah, and I, and I've ex- and I experienced that because so I don't consider myself to be a particularly talented writer, but I have to do a lot of writing in what I do. I write for various newspapers and blogs, and my blog and I wrote, my book is coming out. Um, I can only write after nine o'clock at night. I found that about myself, and it's like it's a weird thing. I know so much. I know it so well that. If, if I found myself with a free hour now after this, this conversation of ours and I had to write something, it would, and it, it's a, you know, 10.30 in the morning here, I wouldn't even attempt it because something clicks. Like 9 o'clock, 
And then at, by 10 o'clock, I've written, like you said, I've written like six or seven pages. And I don't even, and it's done. So you bring up an actually really kind of critical point um, that is that is that is worth mentioning further in terms of flow hacking. Um, my partner Jamie Wheel, who's the executive director of the Flow Genome Project, always says that a lot of what we learned about what we need to know about flow we learned in kindergarten. So what he means by that is your body has natural cycles, natural rhythms, yeah. right? And when you are trying to hack attention, hack flow pay attention to them. So I work, you're what they call an owl, right? An extreme owl. I'm an extreme lark. I'm the exact opposite. I get up at 3.34 o'clock in the morning because I can write and pay the most attention from 3.30 in the morning to about 8.30 in the morning. That's when I'm at my best. So that's when I do most of my writing. And you got to kind of figure out where your, where your sweet spots are in all, right. all this stuff, right? Well, and so and I talk about that in my work as well, and, and I, you know, so for me, I, just to put that out there, I, like I'm up at four thirty most mornings, also, but I have the, I have three very young children, so that would not be an optimal time, obviously, for me to do that. When I was doing Mar uh, Ironman training, I was on the bike at four fifteen in the morning, and that was good. It's you know different things, but I find it goes way beyond that. Uh, I have found, and I, and I have no idea why this is, but I don't do very well on the phone in the afternoon. Like I just, I, I don't, I'm not myself. I think I come off a little aggressive. Like I just, I, conversations on the phone with me don't go very well in the afternoon. And I've noticed that they, they do much better in the morning. I'm much more like into it. Um, so it, it's, and, and I don't know why that is, but I think, I mean, that's all part of it. I'll give you, a, I'll give you a, a, a flip example. For me, I have found, I don't, as a general rule, the late afternoon, you know, one o'clock to four o'clock, I feel like my energy is at my lowest. I don't really try to do creative stuff there, but as an athlete, that is absolutely the sweet spot for flow. It doesn't matter how like revved up, fired up I am when I get to the hill in the morning to ski or to mountain bike or whatever I'm doing, I can work really hard to try to get into flow before lunch, not gonna happen. Always tends to happen in the afternoon. And I think a lot of that is my fear level, because in the high-risk sports, is high enough that I need to exhaust my brain. So I need that whole morning of endurance stuff to bring myself to the edge of flow. I, need, I have to exhaust all that stuff in myself to get myself to kick into flow, which is totally the opposite of myself as a creative writer. Sure, <laughs> it works really well for me because I can do my writing in the morning and then do sports stuff in the afternoon. That's so interesting, um, and it appears that time has dilated because we are <laughs> we we've, we're we're just about out of time here now. Uh, th this has been so so fascinating for me. So I, I thank you for for sharing and simplifying this this stuff to some extent. But I, people have to read the book. It comes out at the beginning of March, right? March fourth. March fourth. Okay, so by the time this airs, it will be out. So uh, everyone really has to read it to hear what the rest of those triggers are. So, yes, uh, absolutely, and, and 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 more, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> there's, uh, flow, there's there's a lot of flow hacking stuff I'm not giving away. Cause yes, yes. Um, so, Stephen, thank you so much for your time, and that that was mind boggling. So, thanks again. Our pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast with Ari Mizell. For more ways to make everything in your life easier, head over to lessdoing.com and also on Twitter at twitter.com slash Ari Mizell or Facebook at facebook.com slash lessdoing. If you enjoyed the show, 
please take a minute to head over to iTunes and leave a positive review. It's greatly appreciated. You can learn the art of less doing, getting started with biohacking, and how to make Gmail, IFTTT, and virtual assistants your ultimate productivity toolbox at udemy.com slash less doing. Until next time, keep optimizing, automating, and outsourcing everything you do.